All right, uh, that's not fair. No one should have to follow the adorableness of the children's bell choir. Good morning. Congregation in Darlington, United Methodist Church, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I am grateful to be standing in this particular pulpit because this church, in fact, was instrumental in my early spiritual formation. Now, those of you who knew me at that time don't, uh, don't hold me to account in the way that I lived. Uh, I was young, uh, and I was new to what the gospel of Jesus Christ entailed. But I will say this, that it was at this church that I first heard a clear presentation of the gospel, of what it meant to be saved. And from there, God was faithful to bring me into union with his son, Jesus Christ. And so it is indeed a privilege for me to stand here in this pulpit and share Christ with you, his church, his people. I have two texts today that will locate the sermon, locate what the aim is of this sermon, and we're going to be in the book of 1 John. And I want to stay where John is, what his purpose and aim was in writing to the Christians of the first century. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, these words, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me say that again. I write these things to you who believe in a particular name, the name of the Son of God, that you may know what, church? That you may know that you have eternal life. This message is about assurance. I would pray that you can walk away from this time today, gathered in the household of God, knowing that you're in union with His Son, the one and only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That would be my prayer. That would be my goal. That would be my hope. And I think it's John's hope here. And then John also gave another reason in the first chapter as to why he was writing, very much connected to that assurance. And that can be found in chapter 1, verse 4. He says this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy. Everyone who is in union with Jesus Christ, all the saved, all the elect of God throughout the world, that our joy would be complete as we walk together in our assurance of salvation and confirm and uphold the testimony of our faith. You know why you come to church on Sunday? I hope it's not just to socialize, although that's a good thing. I hope it's not just to be seen, although it's good to be seen at church. I hope it's not just to get something personal. I hope it's to come to reaffirm what it is that we say that we believe. That is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and He is the one to be worshipped. And we come to affirm in one another what we see to be true in the profession of faith that we hold. So that's why John is writing that we might have assurance of salvation, and connected to that assurance of salvation, there would be joy inexpressible in our lives. When we recognize what it is that Christ has done for us, how can we help but be joyful? Let me pray as I continue. Lord, this is your word, your eternal and unchanging word. Lord, by your spirit, help us to believe it, to understand it, and to embrace it by faith. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The letter of 1 John gives us a glimpse of what church life was like at the end of the first century. 
John is writing to Christians who have been troubled by false teachers, and he's addressing the negative effects these teachers were having on the church, namely doubt and unbelief. Wherever false teaching reigns, wherever false teaching is present, what follows for people is doubt and unbelief. Rather than having assurance of faith, they are doubting, they are uncertain. And it should come as no surprise that the concerns of the first century church are the same concerns that we face in the church here in the 21st century. Here are some of the questions that we would be addressing today and that John was addressing then. First of all, what does it mean to be a Christian? Isn't that good to know? If we profess Christ, we say that we are a Christian, His name is present in the title that we give ourselves, what does it mean to be a Christian and can we know it? Can we know what it means to be a Christian? Yes, we can. Yes, you can. What does a Christian look like? Does a Christian have a particular look? Are there distinguishing characteristics in being a Christian, or do we blend in? When people look at your life, do they know that you love Christ? Another one. How can you tell a real Christian from someone who is merely a professing Christian? Are there false Christians? Are there false professions of faith within the church? The Bible makes that clear. How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that others' testimonies are credible? The church is meant, and John is writing to us, to let us know that we are able to protect one another as we make sure that our faith in Jesus Christ is in fact credible, that we're not being hypocritical. So how do you go about getting assurance that you are in Christ, that you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what John was addressing. That's what I want to address with you today. So again, John addresses these very kinds of issues in his letter. And I would like to look at a few of those ideas of Christian markers. Again, what does it look like to be a Christian? And can we have assurance that, in fact, we are Christian, that we are in union with Christ? And this is obviously not meant to unsettle us. John wasn't writing to unsettle true believers. He was writing for their assurance and joy. So this is not meant to unsettle us in any way, but rather to be confident in our resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. Again, here are the words of John. I write these things to you who believe, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's clear that he's writing in order to bolster our assurance, to bolster our assurance. Throughout the book, John gives several tests or markers or indicators of what a true Christian looks like. In fact, we're going to look at three of those specific tests today to kind of categorize them and for hopefully to help us understand and see what it is that John has written throughout this letter. There are three to identify true and living faith, true Christianity, true union with Jesus Christ. One is a doctrinal test. Do we love God's Word? It's a doctrinal test. There's content and truth claims to the message that, that we find in the Bible. John is writing to defend those truth claims doctrinally. So it matters what we believe. It matters what you believe. It matters what I believe. It matters what is being taught from the pulpit. Another test is a relational test, and that is this question, and it answers this question, do we love God's people? Do we love God's people? If you love God, you will love God's people. And there's a moral test, and that is this. It answers this question, do we love God's holiness? Do we care about God's holiness? 
Do we uphold the holiness of God by the way that we live our lives, by the profession of our faith and by the fruit that comes from that profession? Now, the author you know, the author of this little epistle, you know, it's the beloved disciple, John. I want to talk about him just for a second. John writes this in the very first verse of chapter 1, so that we know who is writing this letter authoritatively and why he has the authority to write and say these things to the church. He says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, that is Jesus, concerning the word of life. John is basically saying, hey, look, I knew Jesus. I touched him. I saw him. I heard him. The one that's writing to you is the one who was with Jesus. I am an eyewitness, and I testify to the things that I saw about the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the light of the world, one of John's favorite expressions. So John basically is saying, hey, church, church, God's people, I want you to be confident in the message that I am proclaiming to you because I was there. I bought the cap. I've got the concert t-shirt. I was in the presence of Jesus Christ. My words are credible and true. And not only was I there, but I laid my head on the chest of my Savior, and he called me his beloved disciple, so you can be confident in what I'm about to tell you. So this morning, let's walk through 1 John together and receive the gift of assurance that the beloved disciple wants to give us. John is giving us a gift. God is giving us a gift through John, and that is this, that you may have assurance that you love Jesus Christ. But this comes with a caveat. We must remember that the nature of Scripture is like that of a double-edged sword. The Word of God itself describes itself as a double-edged sword. When it does its appointed work, the cut will always have a bilateral effect, providing assurance for the saved, but it will bring discomfort and consternation to unbelievers. It will always have that effect. But let me say this to you. When God's Word goes out faithfully, it will always go to its appointed rounds. God never fails in His purposes. Do you know that? Church, do you know that? God has never failed, ever, in anything that He has ever appointed or determined to do. And His Word has that same truth. It is the very words of God that go out from Scripture when you hear it. So it will go and do its appointed rounds. So let's begin with the doctrinal test that I mentioned earlier. Do we love God's Word? Where do you look for assurance of salvation? You look, first of all, to the Word of God. In it contains all that we need for a life of faith, for a life of understanding doctrine and what it means to believe rightly. Now John says it this way. He says it in chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. This is what he says regarding doctrine. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? John is saying, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you are in fact what? A liar. But he takes it even further, as if that's not bracing enough. He says, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This is 
he says, the Antichrist. What is the Antichrist? He who denies the Father and the Son. So John is very concerned that Christians hold certain affirmations, especially affirmations pertaining to the person and work of Jesus Christ. At the center of our faith is a person and what he has done, and his name is Jesus Christ, and what we believe about him matters eternally. And John is very concerned that our belief about Jesus would be derived from where? From the Word of God, from the apostolic message that he is passing on. Remember, it's an eyewitness that wrote this account. I'm not using words out of thin air. What you hear me saying is not coming from my own mind or imagination. These are the words of an apostle who was ordained by God and commissioned by God to write authoritatively the very scripture of God. His words have been inscripturated. That means that they're divinely inspired and they contain the truth. And so when they're proclaimed rightly in any church setting, in any setting whatsoever, we are under obligation to listen and to abide by them. So John gives us a diagnostic tool of, do of a doctrinal nature to aid in our assurance. And here is John's logic. First, he asserts that anyone who professes to be a Christian but denies that Jesus is the Savior is a liar. That person is speaking falsehood such that his profession of faith is not credible. If he says he's a Christian but then somehow denies Jesus or undermines Jesus or minimizes the work of Jesus or plays around with the deity of Jesus, his profession of faith is not credible. And he is, in fact, John says, a liar. And then he goes on to say that any person who denies that Jesus is the Son of God is also denying the Father, both the Son and the Father. If you deny the one that the Father sent, you're denying also the Father who sent him. So that is, even if this person claims to know God and love God and want to serve God, even if he claims to be a follower of God, if he denies the Lordship of Jesus, he is in fact denying God. We cannot have access to God. Listen, listen, church. We cannot have access to God apart from whom? Jesus. Scripture makes that clear. There is no other way to God. There is no other path. There is no other person or even like person that would give us access to God. If it's not the Jesus of the Bible, the incarnate Son of God, deity, fully human, fully God, we don't believe the right God, we don't believe in the right Savior, and therefore we don't have access to God. So John leaves no doubt as to where the source of these false claims that he's talking about. The reason he's writing this letter again is because there are false claims going out into the church. It's bringing confusion, and John wants to settle that. He wants to remove the confusion so that Christians may have assurance of faith and joy in that assurance. So he leaves no doubt as to where the source of these false claims originate. And here's how he says it, very starkly. Wherever you hear a denial or a distortion of the Bible's teaching about Jesus, you are hearing the voice of Antichrist. Did you, did you see that in the text? I just want to make sure. I didn't, I'm not making that up to sound really ooh, shocking and scary. What I want you to understand is this is what John himself said. Where Christ is denied, it's not the Holy Spirit that's being praised and glorified, it's the Antichrist. Now, John obviously means something by Antichrist, and it's not necessarily what we often think about 
if we read Revelation, and that's a whole other area that I'm not going to try to tackle. But what he is saying is this. This is not just some future personification of our mortal enemy, Satan. Antichrist is present wherever false doctrine about Jesus goes out. That's the very spirit of Antichrist, because what is Antichrist? That which denies what the Bible affirms and teaches. So this is John's language. It's stark. It's meant to shake us. It's meant to uh, cold water being thrown in our face. We do not want to be of the spirit of Antichrist. We want to be of the Holy Spirit, of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So John doesn't seem to leave any room for centrist arguments. Do you, do you get that? There's no middle ground, church. There's no middle ground. A person is either of the spirit of Christ or of the spirit of Antichrist. That's what John has proclaimed. That's what John is teaching us about our assurance of salvation. So this tells us that in John's view, if you don't get Jesus right, everything else goes wrong. If you don't get Jesus right, everything else goes wrong. And that's what John is saying. What you believe about Jesus Christ matters. And then he closes the verse by expressing the same truth in the positive. So here we go, church. This is for you and me, right? Because we believe. We believe in Jesus Christ. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And this is shorthand for saying that the Father is delighted with us when we love and worship His Son. The Father is delighted with us when we love and worship His Son. What brings the Father delight is that we exalt Jesus Christ in this place and in our lives. Now, here's a more detailed analysis of that same reality, that the Father is delighted with those who exalt His Son. It's found in Romans chapter 8. All of you know Romans chapter 8, don't you? All of you have read Romans chapter 8, one of the most amazing chapters in all, the whole uh, Bible, written by Paul. But here's Paul expressing the same reality that John just gave us in a more detailed way. If God is for us, who, who in the world can be against us? Not the spirit of Antichrist. We've overcome the Antichrist. We've overcome that spirit because we believe in God's Son. So He, that is God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's assurance, church. God gave up His Son for us, and if that's true, then He is committed. His entire being is committed to those who uphold and worship the Son and confess the Son to be Savior. So what will, we, what will God withhold from the church? Nothing. He'll do all that He promised, church. He'll come through on all of His promises. That's the doctrinal test. John also gives us a relational test. How do we know that we're saved? How do we know that we're in the faith? We love Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. We believe the Jesus of the Bible. And we also have a love for God's people. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, this is what John says about loving our brother and sister. It is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother does what? Abides in the light. Now John says he's writing a new commandment, and our focus this morning will not be to flesh out what John means by a new commandment, because to love our neighbor is also found in the Old Testament 
But rather, I want to emphasize the fact that John, the apostle, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, has issued an apostolic commandment to the church. And he's commanded that they love one another. Again, notice that John uses either-or language here to make his argument. If you hate your brother, you are in what? Darkness. If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. Jesus is the light. So if we hate our brother and we are in the darkness, what is it that John is saying? He's saying that you're not in the light. He's saying that you don't know Jesus because Jesus is the light. And Jesus, being light himself, shows you what he loves and what he doesn't love. And if you don't love what Jesus loves, then you're not in him. So, if you love your brother, then you in fact abide in Jesus, in the light. And I think the importance here is that John is thinking in terms of real world love. Real world love. Not loving the world, don't confuse what I'm saying. Real world love, flesh and blood love. This is not abstracted love, divested of flesh and bone, but an embodied love which is to be lived out right here in the church. God has given you people to love. Look around. Look around this church. These are the people that we're called to love very specifically, with specific actions and specific deeds. We're to look around this body and say, I care about your soul, and I will do whatever I can to make sure that you contend for the faith, that you fight to the very end, that you endure to the end, that, that your profession of Jesus Christ is true. That's what love is. That's what love looks like. Not just handshakes and see you next week, it means investment in each other's lives. John isn't saying that there'll never be any disagreements or arguments or difficulties. We're human beings, aren't we? I may have said something already from this pulpit that might have offended you. It's quite possible. We offend one another, don't we? We have disagreements. Even in the church, we struggle. And yet that's the very place where the love of God can be most visible, is how the church loves one another. How will, they know that we're, how will they know we are Christians? By our love. By our love. So John isn't offering some pie-in-the-sky abstracted reality of unattached love. He's saying, no, it happens right here in the church. In the nitty-gritty and the dirtiness of human existence where we struggle and our sins are exposed and we mess up and we hurt one another, we love. We love anyway. The evidence that we are truly born again, one of the evidences that we are truly born again is that we have a love for God's people. And that love will be irrepressible. We won't be able to help it. The compelling nature of Christ's love for us will affect love in our hearts for one another. Can I say that again? You're not going to love people first and then Christ loves you. That isn't how it works. That's not the order <laughs> that's happening here. No, because Christ loved you passionately, faithfully, completely, sufficiently, because Christ loved you, guess what will happen as a result of that love being in your heart? You will truly have a love for one another. If you are born again and in the light, you will truly have a love for one another. So John is articulating for us a profound biblical truth. Our deeds reveal our heart, not the other way around. 
Your actions come always from the source of your desires in your heart. You will do what you desire. And if you love God's people, it's because God has given you a new heart that is able to look at people like yourself, sinners, people who are prone to make mistakes, people who are prone to hurt you and each other, and give you a love for them anyway, and a compassion for them anyway. If we love God, we will love God's people. And this love shows itself in tangible ways. As when we provide care for one another and bear each other's burdens, as when we are kind and tender-hearted and forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. That's what love looks like in the church. I'm not here every day, but I would say yes, I believe that that happens here in this church, doesn't it? Now that should bring you assurance. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't bring you assurance, then this is something that you should examine in your own heart so that you might come to have an understanding of what this means and have assurance for yourself. And then finally, we come to the third test, and that is the moral test. And it's answering this question, do we love God's holiness? So, do we profess Jesus Christ? Do we, have, do we pass the doctrinal test? Do we pass the relational test that we love God's people? We love Christ, and therefore we love God's people. And now, do we pass the moral test that we love God's holiness? In other words, what is our relationship to sin? Do you know what humanity's greatest problem is? It's possible that if we took a poll and each of you could articulate an answer, we might have a different response from every person in this room. And there'd be good reasons for you to have that particular response, I'm sure. But let me tell you what the Bible says is the most significant problem, the greatest problem that humanity faces. Let me be really clear because this is, the Bible is clear and unambiguous about this. The greatest problem for humanity is sin and a specific kind of sin. Sin has a horizontal effect. We hurt each other, but the greatest problem is what? That we have sinned against a holy God, a holy and righteous God. And that is our greatest problem. And thank God that he devised a rescue plan and a remedy to solve that problem. Thank God that he did, because I would be in trouble if he had not. So, this is what John has to say about this problem of sin and what we are to do about it. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, he says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. First, John is refuting a false teaching occurring in the church at this time, which tended to minimize or even deny the doctrine of sin, the problem of sin. There was a teaching going on in, in the church that said, basically, it's not your, it's not your sinful relationship to, toward God that's the problem. It's just that you need some medicine. You just, you just make some mistakes, and you can be corrected if you just take these steps. So John is refuting that and saying, no, in fact, the problem with all humanity, with every person ever born is this, we're born sinners and we reject God. So John is saying that our sin cannot be dealt with by denying its presence in our lives. To say that we are sinless is self-deceptive. And even worse than that, we make God out to be, he says, a liar. No, we must acknowledge that we are indeed sinful by nature. 
But here we go, church. We can take comfort. If the story ended there, that would be bad news. The gospel is good news, but what's it set in contrast to? Well, bad news. We're sinners, and God is right, righteously angry with us. We're not in fellowship with God. There's enmity between sinners and God unless God does something on our behalf. So there's good news here, and that is this, that we can take comfort in the fact that God has provided a remedy for the Christian through Jesus Christ, and that remedy through Jesus Christ is this, that we confess our sins, that we live in repentance. Anybody done repenting yet? Anybody perfected yet? I know I'm not. Probably from this morning, I've already needed to repent from something. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No. What evidences us as a Christian is not that sin is gone. No, what evidences us as Christians is this, that when we do sin, we repent and confess. We don't glory in sin. We don't make an excuse for sin. Because we're forgiven, I can live any way I want. That's not what John is saying, is it? That's cheap grace. That's not the grace of the Bible. No, John is saying, because you've been forgiven, when you sin, repent. But because you have been forgiven, guess what you'll want to do? You'll not want to sin. Sin will cause you to grieve. You'll be grieved in your heart when you sin against God or hurt somebody in the church. You'll be grieved and you'll want to repent because the spirit of Christ is in you, not the spirit of Antichrist, which would just make excuses for our sin or deny sin. Confession is the outward expression of repentance. John makes it clear that repentance and confession are necessary aspects of the Christian life. It's an evidence of the Christian life. It's a fruit of the Christian life that we confess our sins and repent. And so the proper attitude of the Christian towards sin is not to deny that we have a sin problem, oh, our sin problem is great, but to recognize the ongoing reality of sin and to confess it to God. And what we can expect from God when we turn to Him in repentance is this, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is the good news of the, of the gospel, church. If you're sitting there and you don't feel something in your heart when you recognize that God, even though you have sinned against Him, and He has righteous anger, and He will condemn that sin, that He has forgiven you, you've received the good news of the gospel that God has cleansed you. He's faithful to forgive us of our sins. That's the best news possible. That's the, that's the news that the world needs. Now, you might have been expecting Him to say, He's gracious and merciful to forgive, and He is. God is gracious and merciful. Those are traits of our Heavenly Father as well. But no, John uses particular words here. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And here's what John means by that statement. He's saying that God is a God who is trustworthy because God's own veracity, His own truthfulness is on the line. God will not renege on promises to forgive those who trust in Christ. And then a final verse here that I want to conclude. Chapter 2, verse 1, John says this to bring comfort to us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, listen to this, if anyone does sin, here's what we have. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is the advocate? Back to the doctrinal test. The advocate is Jesus Christ, the one and only. The one way to have access to God. The one way to receive God's forgiveness. The one way to be able to have fellowship with Him is that we are in union with Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
So the justice of God, he uses the word justice. The justice of God to forgive our sins is mediated through the righteousness of Christ. Listen, God did not sweep our sins under the carpet. You realize that. God did not sweep our sin. He didn't turn a blind eye to our sin and say, I'm just going to ignore sin. No, he did something about our sin. He crucified his son. He decreed that his son would be crucified and that his precious, infinitely worthy blood would be shed on our behalf. And in blood is forgiveness of sins. The shedding of blood is the only way that sins may be forgiven. And the only way that sins may be eternally forgiven is that the eternal Son of God died and shed His blood for us. Do you see that, church? Do you know that to be true? Do you have that assurance today? So God is just. He dealt with our sins. Yeah, there must be recompense for our sins. One way or another, we will pay for our sins. Either Christ has paid for them on our behalf or we'll pay for them in another way. Christ liquidated, removed, expunged the debt for sins, and he satisfied the righteousness of God. Righteous Christ is now our righteousness. Did you know that? Imputation. Righteous Christ has now imputed to us his very righteousness. That's called justification. God is just and the justifier of all. That's what justification is. Christ's righteousness has been transferred to your account if you know Jesus Christ. And where did my sin go? To him. He bore that on the cross, church. Do you see that? Do you see what that is? That's, that's justification by faith. That's substitutionary atonement. He died in my place. I deserve to die. He died for me. If you know that and believe that and profess that to be true, if that is in your heart, guess what you have right now? Forgiveness of sins, assurance of faith, and joy that you are delighting God when you worship His Son. So here's how I'm going to close. Therefore, we can go to Him and cry, Abba, Father, forgive me because of your promise and because of your Son. Oh, what assurance that we have. Amen.